North America is getting soft, Patron, and the rest of the world is getting tough. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures in all the places. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as a Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim. What are we talking about today? Well, I, I, this is something that's been coming down the line based based on the things you've been watching. <laughs> Although, in all honesty, and you'll probably agree with this, it's pretty tamed in, compared to some of the things you've been watching. That's entirely <laughs> true, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I it, it seemed like a topic. We had a couple different lists for this, and kind of like paired it down to like its most simplest form and what we're going to be talking about today here on the cinematic void podcast is snuff films rather films that deal with snuff or the mythological because people swear that snuff films don't exist but you know that whole thing where you know someone films someone being murdered on camera and three of the movies deal with that actual topic. One of the movies just happened to be accused of being a snuff film. So it's going to be a really lighthearted and fun episode. Although, compared to Nick's playlist, if you go to his letterbox and see the shit he's been watching, you'll be like, well, this is pretty tame comparably. But, you know, they all these films had their impact at one point. It's, it's a weird, fun topic because, like, you and I were in a band in, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s called In Spite. The only reason I'm throwing it out, we had a song called The DIY Guide to Making Snuff Films, which doesn't mean anything. It was just a, I thought it was a funny title or whatever. And, but I think it's this weird fascination of this idea that you could film someone dying. And obviously there's, like, police videos, which are probably, or people filming the police, like, killing people on camera. So those might be the closest to real snuff films. But I guess there was a time period, and I think it started in the 70s, that there were reports coming out of, like, South America that people were, like, paying money for these shot-on-film, well, for lack of a better word, movies where people were being killed on camera. According to the FBI and CIA and countless other people, they don't exist. But, like, let's be real here. You know someone's fucking made a snuff film, right? Well, I tell you what, man, uh, it, it certainly does exist today. Uh, just go to Reddit, go to 4chan, 8chan, whatever, you know, snuff, snuff films do now exist, especially now that each of us have a, a, a video camera in our pocket, a really nice one, 
you know, like, I mean, hell, I've seen things much more terrible than the films I've been watching, you know, everything from, you know, the fucking Christchurch, that New Zealand shooting, like that guy filmed it like it was a fucking first person shooter video game. It's, it's terrifying. It's what's really fucked up in the world is just like technology has made that kind of stuff available. But in the, in the 70s, I don't want to say it's a more naive time because it really wasn't. You had better cocaine. Some people say you had better movies. You had hippies. Well, no, I guess the hippies were gone by the 70s. You had disco. Well, that's not really helping things. I guess where the start is like, you know, there's a lot of rumors about snuff films coming out of South America. So this first film we're going to talk about, at least in its marketing, cleverly exploited that angle. It's a film from 1975. It has three directors credited. Michael Fenley, Horatio Fredrickson, and Simon Neutrum. It is Snuff. Now, I'm just going to throw the plot out here because... We're gonna, there's a lot to unpack about Snuff and how Snuff became Snuff because Snuff wasn't made... The, the Snuff you see that you can get on... I think Blue Underground put it out on Blu-ray and they also did DVD. The Snuff you can watch now was not how that film was ever intended to be. Which is why it's an interesting curiosity. But anyway, here's the plot. A so-called snuff movie involving the exploits of a cult leader leading a gang of bikers in a series of supposedly real killings on film. That's your plot. Now, as I've already stated, it was not conceived as a film about snuff films. It was actually originally shot as The Slaughter by Michael Finley that was dp by his wife and filmmaker in her own right, Roberta Finley. The Finleys have been cranking out exploitation films since the 60s, most famously their Flesh trilogy, which is Touch of Her Flesh, The Curse of Her Flesh, and Kiss of Her Flesh, as well as Shriek of the Mutilated. And unfortunately, Michael Finley died in a helicopter accident in the, I think, 77 or 78. And that ended his career. But Roberto continued her career in exploitation films. She made Tenement, The Oracle, Blood Sisters, as well as a bunch of hardcore pornography. Yeah, well-rounded. So let's get into The Slaughter. The Slaughter was shot in late 60s, early 70s in Argentina, South America. And the basic plot was that, you know, some... Film producers were just going to South America to make a movie, and they ran into a Manson family-type cult, which kind of makes sense when it was originally shot in 69 or 70. There's a big, big debate if this version of the film ever saw the light of day or if it was just shelved. You know, for whatever reason, you know, there was this movie called The Slaughter, or Slaughter, depending. I've found conflicting reports on it. That was made. No one saw it until five years later when it was reborn as Snuff. So, how did the slaughter become Snuff? Well, we're going to tell you. First, the name change. The film's financier took a payment from American International Pictures so they could use the title Slaughter for one of their exploitation films starring Jim Brown. So, now their movie didn't have a title. That's cool. And then the film's distributor just kind of sat on it. This guy named Alan Shackleton. He, you know, had this movie, sat on it for four years. And at that point, Manson cults were 
kind of out of exploitation vogue. When the Manson murders happened in 69, there was a ton of, like, exploitation movies that were, like, capturing her, you know, trying to jump on that, like, Manson family cult bandwagon. At this point, he's just like, not going to work. And then he saw an article about snuff films allegedly being made in South America, and he got inspired. Just remember, for three of these films, South America comes up a bit. And I don't know why South America was considered the hotbed for snuff films, whether they happen or not. Well, as the uh, the tagline says, where life is cheap. Yeah. I mean, that fil- that tagline is like, I'm sure people from South America really appreciate that, that the snuff tagline was, the film that can only be made in South America, where life is cheap. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, it's a... For exploitation film, it's a brilliant, brilliant tagline. But you you are going to alienate a whole country. But, you know, exploitation films are going to do what exploitation films are going to do. They're going to exploit. So, Shackleton had this film. Wasn't sure what exactly to do with it. He knew how he wanted to repackage it. But then he's like, I need something to drive it home that this is a snuff film. So you hired Simon Newcham to come in and shoot a brand new ending. So what you see the previous, like, 75, 80 minutes or whatever the runtime of this movie is, that's the slaughter by the Finleys. And the last, like, three or four minutes, the ending of the movie, is was shot by Simon Newcham, who years later went on to direct Silent Madness and basically spent a day in a you know, studio where they usually shoot porn movies and basically made the cinema verte snuff ending where the director of the movie you had been watching the slaughter kills someone on camera without realizing the cameras are still rolling. And to add to the whole, like, is this a snuff film thing? The film just abruptly cuts at the end, no credits, no nothing just to kind of give the impression that it was a, Unplanned murder caught on camera that accidentally ended up in the film print. Like, that would actually really happen. But, 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 people believed it. Funny enough. And as for the Finleys, well, they were unaware of this was what was happening to the slaughter. Which is kind of funny that, like, this movie, I don't know if they actually went to, like, the, uh, like, a grindhouse theater and, like, oh, let's check out this movie named Snuff. And they're like, hey, that's our fucking movie kind of thing. I don't know if that ever happened or not. We already talked about the ingenious and offensive tagline. And Shackleton wasn't done there. So in order to help build more drama to sell more tickets for Snuff and leaning into, like, is this a real Snuff film you're about to watch? He hired a bunch of protesters to go protest screenings around different towns. And, you know, it kind of worked. It drummed up business. However, real protesters actually started showing up with the fake ones, which kind of shocked Shackleton that his publicity stunt was actually working a little too well. Now, Snuff played the theaters, and it was actually proven to be a hoax, like pretty early on, but it, you know, they just, they just watched the scene, <laughs> you know, it's just like, we have to, we have to find out if it's real or not. And then you just act like, if you actually just watch the fucking movie, you could tell it's not a real death, but you know, nope, they got to make a whole thing out of it. Well, I mean, I, 
I've talked to people that saw snuff in the theater when it originally came out, and they're like, "Oh yeah, man, the, the, the murder—it was just so real. It was just so real." And it's like, you know, having watched snuff, would you think any of those fucking murders count as real? No, not even close. No, it, it's—I don't know, but like, <laughs> people were just going, going, going for it and thought it was real. So you know. For an exploitation marketing move, it it was genius, but like, it basically created a shitstorm of protesters, and it persisted. Most of the theaters just played the movie anyway, but there was a couple outside incidents. There was one in Rochester where like a poster case was vandalized that had the snuff poster in it, and like people broke in to tear it out. And in Monticello, a theater owner was actually arrested on obscenity charges for showing snuff. So shit was getting real. To the point that in New York, the district attorney opened up an investigation whether this film was real or not. And basically, all they had to do was watch the movie, and basically, this was their conclusion. Nothing more than conventional trick photography as evident to anyone who sees the movie. Now, was this the kind of thing, I, I feel like I've heard rumors, and I don't know if it was for this film in particular, but for one of these kinds of films, at least, you know, there was a, like say for instance like the cast hides for x amount of time like you know it it seems like it was a real death on camera so the cast like fucking because i know that the uh the poster for this film or i saw one of them that says like you know that the you know the cast was to never be seen again or whatever but like is there was that this film is there real life instances where people have done that as a publicity stunt cannibal holocaust did it really yeah, that was Cannibal Holocaust thing. Diodato had all the actors sign ca- contracts that they would just disappear while the film came out. And it wasn't until like he went to court that they had to like drag all the actors out for it. In the case of Snuff, since the Finley shot in South America and Argentina, and most of the cast wasn't, you know, I don't want to use the term not real actors, but not real actors... I, it was pretty easy to say, like, no one knows who the cast is because, like, no one in the fucking movie, and that's including the the ending that was tacked on, like, was well-known. It was just basically unknown. So it was, it was probably a little bit easier, especially because, like, you weren't going to... It's not like you had Burt Reynolds and snuff. You can't pretend Burt Reynolds is dead. He's gone. Well, he's gone now, but in <laughs> 1975, he was in his prime, goddammit. Now, we've talked a lot about this gimmick, and really, the gimmick is what makes Snuff Snuff, because the movie's not that good. Truly, the movie's... I'm not into it. It's not... I, I, don't, I don't really recommend it. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that, the, like you said, the, the Snuff portion makes it. I did really like the opening scene. I thought the opening scene was pretty rad. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the tacked-on ending kind of works, but, like, you can tell it's a completely different film. Yeah. And... and Again, I don't know how people like really, really like, oh my god, I just watched a snuff film. It's like, no, you just watched a movie called Snuff. That's it. I think there's other things that play into why people kind of bought into it. And it's like familiarity in the Finley's filmography. Because like a lot of the movies they made in the 60s were shot, you know, silent. And they dubbed the voices afterwards, which is what the slaughter is. And they said... You know, they were using the excuse that most of the cast didn't speak English, so they were just going to dub them in anyway. But, like, it's just kind of how they made things. And I don't know. It just, 
yeah, the movie's just not good. It's a great marketing ploy, but like, I don't understand how anyone in their fucking right mind would believe snuff was real. Yeah. Just, I don't know. But then I, I think back to when you and I saw the Blair Witch in 1999, and like, I think we went in knowing that it wasn't real, but like, we left feeling like maybe it was. Yeah, you there know? was just this, just enough of uh, an air of mystery to it. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's all I got to say about snuff. It's it's a movie about snuff films, I guess. Not really. It became a movie about snuff films. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But we're going to turn. We're going to be up the snuff here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera. Snuff. This is the true story of four innocent young actresses who thought they were making just another movie, but didn't know they were making the ultimate movie. You will feel the pain, and you will not flinch from it. Snuff, the film that could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. thing that ever happened in front of a camera. Welcome back. We're talking about films that deal with snuff films here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, the feel-good episode of the year, I think. Or maybe not, I don't know. Up next, we're going to the glorious year of 1977, which I think is the year that punk became big. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Nick. It's the year it broke? Yeah. Well, I think the year the year it broke was like what for that doc that <laughs> yeah, um, concert. Yeah, but like seventy seven was like a pinnacle year for punk, whatever. But that has nothing to do with this. But it is a film directed by Jody Amato, who made tons and tons of exploitation, pornographic, horror, you name it. Joe made it, and this film is a very notorious film. It is a manual in America. The film is part of the Black Emanuel series that stars Laura Gemser as the sex-obsessed investigative reporter slash fashion photographer. And for those of you who don't know about Black Emanuel, well, let me give you a very, very quick primer. Black Emanuel is the Italian cash-in of the 1974 film Emanuel. Emanuel with two M's, not one, unlike Emanuel America. It was directed by French sexploitation director just Jackin, whose name will always be fitting for the films he made and starred Dutch model Sylvia Crystal. The first Black Emanuel film was directed by Beto Albertini, with Joe D'Amato picking up the series and directing five films between 76 and 78, including America, as well as Emanuel in Bangkok, Emanuel Around the World, Emanuel in the Last Cannibals, and Emanuel on the White Slave Trade. You know, fun things. All upbeat. Really, really, really positive movies here. Laura Gemser returned to the series in the 80s with two films helmed by Bruno Mattei that were Violence in a Women's Prison and Emanuel Escapes from Hell. And although not featuring Gemser, Albertini directed a Black Emanuel 2 of his own as well as a Yellow Emanuel. So, lots of manuals go around. Not, and that's not even counting the movies that star Laura Gemser that were retitled as Black Emanuel movies. To cash in the success of those films. 
And just to get this out of the way, Gemser is of Indonesian Dutch heritage, which isn't African-American, but exploitation marketing is just going to do its thing regardless of political correctness. But if you've seen these films, or any film in this series, politically correctness is non-existent anyway, so there you go. I guess we should throw out the plot. A hedonistic photojournalist, Emmanuel, goes undercover to expose the seedy lives of rich and powerful sex cultists and snuff film peddlers in America and Europe. Or Jeffrey Epstein. D'Amato at this point in his career was also dabbling in pornography with some of his films. Some films had porn inserts, others were just straight up horror porn, and he made a couple also notorious films, which included Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, which also starred Laura Gemser, and Mark Shannon, who has very, very distinct genital warts on his nuts that are proudly filmed in glorious 35mm. For those who have seen them, you know what I'm talking about. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, I can't recommend seeing them. I feel like this is going to be the episode where we're not recommending a lot of things. But it's okay. Now, this film features some hardcore stuff, but, you know, unlike some of his other, like, porn, horror, exploitation, that kind of things, it kind of adds to the aesthetic of what's going on, and really also heightens the disturbingness of the film. Now, when I gave you a copy of The Watch, Nick, I basically just said one thing. And what was that? I believe you said something along the lines of, uh, you'll never look at horses the same again. Yeah, that was the only setup I gave you. I think you knew there was going to be some snuff in there. But like, basically, the reason why, because one of the most notorious things about this film, especially when like I was getting into you know, collecting and, like, trying to find the most subverse and weird and fucked up movies was, like, yo, man, Emmanuel America has a woman stroking off a horse in graphic detail, and it's, like, that shit can't be real. Well, I assumed it was a... I assumed it had something to do with snuff because, I, you know, I, I know the episode that we're doing, but uh, you didn't really tell me, for one, that it was uh, a porno. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, you know, you did tell me the horse thing, but... and. Uh, as a, as I said earlier, you know, I've seen Freddy got fingered. I've I've seen the life and death of a porno gang. I've seen some horse stuff. I've seen the fucking zoo documentary. <laughs> uh, so I guess I'm not I'm not affected by this fucking horse scene. It's it's man, this is a great movie. I love, I love this is a great movie. <laughs> I do I do recommend this one. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> Snuff, not recommended. Manual America, two thumbs up, way up. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about that is is that it's early in the film. It's a weird thing, and I I don't want to say it's the first, but, like, Diamato's done this a few times. I don't know what his thing was for, like, having horse bestiality included in his films. I don't know if that was, there was a big market for it. If people in the 70s were, like, sex-obsessed with horses? I mean, obviously that dude in that zoo documentary was, which... Would you recommend that one, Nick? It's not for everyone. <laughs> it's not for everyone. If you don't know what that is, uh, a guy filmed himself having sex with a horse. Um, it was like, I don't know, I guess he was, you know, obsessed with the notion. You know, that kind of thing. The same way there's people out there that are like, I want to fucking, I wish I didn't have like my right 
hand <laughs> or whatever. Like the people have weird obsessions. Uh, and this guy just wanted a horse to fuck him and he videotaped it, set up the whole thing and he died. And there's a whole documentary about it. And you probably don't want to watch that documentary, but if you're a sick fuck and I know some of you are, let's fucking go. And this is taking a darker turn than I ever expected. What was I thinking with this topic? Well, again, the, the horse part is one thing, but, you know, I guess we should talk about the snuff things. So, you know, that doesn't come until a little bit in the film, which kind of sets up because, you know, you're, you're watching the movie. There's a bunch of sex breaks, some more pornographic than others. And then Emmanuel finds herself at this resort for women to pay men to fulfill their ultimate desires. And then that's where Emmanuel witnesses a couple watching a snuff film. And unlike the snuff footage in Snuff, this footage is actually convincing. I don't know if you agree or disagree here. Uh, also, I also I didn't see that coming and was like, whoa, like this is fucking gnarly. It's yeah, it's nasty. I mean, it's it, it's brutal, and I mean it. It's meant to be brutal, and it's very, very soul crushing. It's like, man, imagine if you were going in the seventies to watch a porn, and then like that comes up on the screen. Horny. That, that. <laughs> <laughs> just just jaking around. Just Joe and the Demato, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> this stuff was so effective that David Cronenberg, famous Canadian genre filmmaker saw this movie and was so disturbed by it that it was part of his inspiration for Videodrome, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Or at least that's the urban legend that he saw Emmanuel America, got to that snuff stuff, and was like, holy shit, this disturbs me. And he's like, but now I need to work through whatever I saw. So, you get Videodrome. But again, coming up later. That the footage is just so visceral, and... You know, D'Amato made a bunch of horror movies. He made Anthropogenesis, Absurd, you know, lots of things where, like, you know, George Eastman's guts are falling out and, like, dead babies and stuff. But, like, honestly, the only other time I think he got to this harrowing level was in his movie Beyond the Darkness, which is another upbeat romantic movie that deals with a guy that keeps the dead body of his girlfriend and then kills other girls because, I don't know, he's got issues. I think that's a pretty good, accurate description Beyond the Darkness. Another dark, fucked up movie. But at least there's no horses and no porn. But there is some really, really nasty gore in it. So much so that people swore up and down that he used real dead bodies in some of the incinerator and, like, acid bath scenes. I mean, it's... When Joe went for realism, he fucking nailed it. And, like, for this stuff, it's just, like, it's just grisly. Cool, cool. Now now I got another one to check out. Oh, I... I actually screened Beyond the Darkness at, I think, the Severn 10th anniversary screening, because they ended up putting it out on Blu-ray. It's actually a really good movie. I actually say it's Jody Motto's best movie, like, well-made movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I am recommending it, Beyond the Darkness, a.k.a. Um, Buried Alive, a.k.a. Blue Omega. has a really, really kick-ass goblin score and some gnarly grizzliness. Not as gnarly as Emmanuel in America, but still pretty effective. So, back to the movie we're discussing here. After seeing this snuff footage, Emmanuel decides to find out who's making these films and ends up discovering a group of sex traffickers that supplies women for those films. 
So, what does Emmanuel do? She goes undercover, takes a bunch of photos, and nearly loses her life in the process. But she escapes with all the evidence, and is ready to bust open that snuff ring. Scepter editor for the magazine she works for says it's way too controversial and won't print them. Epstein still had power back in the 70s, I assume. But I, I just like the fact that her the boss at her newspaper, whatever the fuck it is, is just like, I ain't printing this shit. And she's like, alright, fuck you, I'm going on vacation with my boyfriend, see ya. I, I, I gotta blow off some steam after being caught up in that deep dark web, or I guess there wasn't a dark web back in the 70s. Deep dark world of South American snuff filmmaking. I don't know, I mean, overall, what, what were your thoughts on this movie? Since you just now had your eyes open to it. Again, I if you if you're looking for fucked up stuff to see, as I am, uh, this this one fits the bill. I I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a wild one. It is a lot closer to porn than I expected. Um, and again, the uh, the the stuff that are that's brutal, it's truly brutal. But it's it's fucking it's really cool, man. Like it has just like a fucking vibe, like the atmosphere. Like it's just. It's just got this fucking cool thing going for it that's like, you know, even if maybe the story is not great or like whatever the fuck, like it's still just, you know, you can just chill with the vibe and 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 have a good time, you know, watch some porno. <laughs> watch some porn with it's, some snuff film footage. It's tr- truly the first uh, full length porn film I've ever seen. Like the first like I'm watching a, a porn and plot like that. This was my first one. So thank you for that. That's what I do. I enlighten people. I don't know if enlightening is the right word for this, but, you know. Well, you saw it. And, yeah, I think if you're in... I don't want to say into that stuff, because then it makes it sound like you're a fucking, like, scumbag or pervert or something. But you probably are if you're watching that stuff anyway. <laughs> but I, I, I'll say, like, I, I'll get my recommendation behind it, because it's, like, it's an interesting, weird movie made at an interesting, weird time that no one in their fucking right mind is going to try to ever make again. Looking forward to the, the 2030s when there's a whole new run of Emmanuel films. You know, I'm actually surprised someone hasn't earnestly tried to bring it back. I, I'm pretty sure someone has in like the 90s at least, like some kind of softcore Cinemax thing, which is where a lot of the Emmanuel movies ended up. And even some of the Black Emmanuel movies, although tamer versions because, yeah, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, I mean, I guess I was going to say, I'm not sure if I can recommend it, but, like, you know, if you're in, as far as extreme cinema goes, if that's your bag, which, if you're a friend of Nick's, it probably is, it's essential viewing on all on that front. Hey, I happen to notice uh, Mark McCoy, who uh, was the singer of Charles Bronson and does, like, Youth Attack Records and all that stuff. I follow him on Letterboxd, and I, I think that he has, like, really discerning tastes. Like, he's he is very particular, like, he's kind of snobby about the stuff that he likes, I'll say. But uh, he definitely gave uh, Emmanuel in America five stars. So, fuck yeah. Because that's a youth attack right there. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, things are going to continue to be very snuffy here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. Imagine Barbie here. <laughs> a horse in trouble. I'll set her free. Barbie races to help. Kisses, Barbie. She kisses. You found your home. I'll call you Walking a horse of my own. Beauty gets carrots from her friend. Barbie pulls a ring. Our fun never ends. Beauty. Anything is possible with Barbie. 
Barbie doll and Walking Beauty horse sold together or separately. Staples sold separately too. Welcome back. We've been talking about films that deal with snuff films here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And up next, I'd say is probably the most real film film that we're discussing. Which is not to say the other ones aren't films. I mean, Emmanuel America is a film, but I think this one, because it's more... I don't want to say conventional, because it's not conventional either. It's it's a weird fucking movie, but it's a movie that both you and I really, really love. And, well, I guess we'll, before we get into the snuff aspect, we'll wax philosophically and, you know, talk about this our relationship with this movie. It's from 1983. It's directed by Mr. David Cronenberg, who directed such things as The Brood, De- Dead Ringers, Shivers, Rabbit. The Fly, Naked Lunch, you know, nothing but hits. Of course, we're talking about Videodrome. Fuck. <laughs> holy, <laughs> holy shit! Like, if you if you don't already know this, like, Videodrome is one of the greatest horror movies of all time, and it is it is unconventional, and and especially like you know when when we found it as teenagers, like. And just being into like, oh, I just want to like speaking for myself, like, oh, I just want to see some fucked up shit. (laughs) You know me. But like, you know, just looking for some fucking gore or whatever. And then finding this thing. It's just fucking different, man. And it's fucked up. And uh, and I, I know that we have both loved this film for a long fucking time. Yeah, because I first saw Videodrome on the Sci-Fi channel when it was S-C-I-F-I, before it was S-Y-F-Y. Not a lot of people do that. And back when they actually showed horror movies and stuff on that, I saw the Universal TV print of Videodrome, which, I don't know, I'm going to do this real quick, not to get too far off topic, but Universal was notorious for making very, very different TV versions of movies. They did it to, like, The Thing... They did it notoriously to um, Brazil where they changed the fucking ending. They didn't have to change the ending. They changed the ending in the TV version. And a lot of it was the, you know, pad out runtime when, like, things that you couldn't show on TV, like vaginal slits in people's stomachs and, like, exploding hands and stuff like that, they had to replace it with other, other footage. And... TV version of Videodrome is really interesting, and I remember having it because I taped it off of Sci-Fi, and then I went and rented it because it's like I need to see the uncut version, and it just blew me away. And I know at one weird point, I actually sat down with two VCRs and did a VCR to VCR edit, combining all the footage from the TV version that wasn't in the director's cut, and mixing them in. So I had this super cut of Videodrome, which might still be at my parents' house. It wasn't that great because some of those edits were pretty bad, but like I was obsessed with this movie for a long time and I'm not sure if I loaned you a, my VHS of it or if I just duped you a copy at some point. But I know we talked a lot about it when we were hanging out in high school and I guess into the 2000s as it were. I I can't even remember. I I may have seen it just from renting it initially, but I definitely at some point got a copy of it from you. Um, because, you know, I would get tapes from you with, like, 15 films on one tape. That's an exaggeration. But, you know, I probably had it on a tape with, like, Cemetery Man and some uh, Necromantic, you know? So Yeah, because I, I think I did make you a bunch of, like, 
this is going to date us, but like, the kids like VHS anyway. Now, there's different VHS speeds, and like, there's like SP, LP, and EP. And SP is like the best quality wise, but if you record an EP, you can fit up to like maybe like eight hours on a tape. So I think I made you a bunch of eight hour tapes with a bunch of different movies and maybe trailers and other shit just because it was. It's kind of like a mixtape, except you got movies instead of music. Probably because you were giving me music and like, well, shit, I ain't got any music to give you, so here's some fucking movies. But I know when we were doing our band that we mentioned earlier at the top of the podcast, we are in a band called InSpite, and we, a lot of the lyrics were about movies and stuff. I know at one point we wouldn't say there was a Videodrome song. There was a David Cronenberg song, which I don't think we actually ever recorded, but like... I know Videodrome was a big obsession that was within that band as well. I don't know how much of it actually ended up. I th- probably DIY Guide to Snuff Films was probably based on Videodrome a little bit. You can go find it on Bandcamp, whatever. But we're getting off topic, but like, you know, I haven't watched Videodrome in a while. I think you were, we were talking during the break, and you were talking about like the first movie you saw when you moved to L.A. was Videodrome, wasn't it? Yeah, I was, uh, I was working in Beverly Hills and living in Hollywood, and actually biking to Beverly Hills every day, which is fucking insane now that I think about it. Um, but one day I was biking home and I just like, I didn't always take Beverly, but this day in particular, I decided to take Beverly and I was passing by the new Beverly and I saw that Videodrome was playing that night. So I'm like, fuck it. I, I'm not going all the way home and then biking all the way back. And uh, so I just went to uh, Swingers, which is kind of across the street, not quite, but like pretty close. Um, and they sat me down and I was sitting right next to uh, Ricky Rackman from uh, Headbangers Ball. And I guess he probably also did like Love Line or something. But, uh, you know, I, I know him from Headbangers Ball because again, I'm dating myself here. But, um, but, but then I went and saw Videodrome at the New Beverly and that was my first time being there. My first film in LA. It was, it was, uh, you know what, one thing, one thing I'll say from that, that viewing in particular, it was my first time seeing it at a theater and to see it with a crowd. Um, it's like, I kind of hadn't noticed how also funny it is, you know, like the relationship between Max Wren and, um, you know, the guy that works for him, the guy that does like the, the pirating, all that stuff. I forget his name, but, uh, you know, they're like little kind of quips back and forth, stuff like that. It's like, it's genuinely funny. Um, so yeah, it kind of it's it's a great balancing act between those little those little moments and and how fucked up it is, you know. Yeah, funny enough, the first movie I saw the New Beverly, and this was probably maybe like a good year after I moved to LA, my before she was my wife, my now wife Morgan, surprised me by taking me to go see a midnight screening of Videodrome at the New Bev. So that was the first movie I saw the New Bev too. And, yeah, it it's a fun movie. I mean, I guess fun's relative. I mean, it plays well with the audience, which is kind of hilarious when you think about that it tanked really fucking hard when it came out. I don't know. You can go on the Criterion disc. They have all the um, test screening cards. Basically, they test screened it at, like, a weird theater where, like, it was a bunch of, like, moms bringing their kids to it because they were the only people that would come to a movie in the middle of the day. And, like, half the cars were like, I hate your fucking movie. What the fuck is this shit? That kind of stuff. 
it's pretty impressive that like that movie ended up having a life of its own. There's a lot of reasons because one, it's a great fucking movie. And before I forget, um, you're talking about Harlan, the video tech guy that works for um, James Woods of Max Ren. So I guess now that we've talked about our love of Videodrome, we should actually talk about Videodrome. The film stars James Woods, who I, I'm going to say this, James Woods is a scumbag. He's a great scumbag actor. This is his pinnacle scumbag role. I'm not trying to separate art from the person, whatever. I'm just saying, like, James Woods might not be a good person. But he's good in this movie, if that makes sense. He's great also in this star- movie. <laughs> oh, he's great yeah. in this movie. You know, it's like... Yeah, I, just I, wish I, I, can't, uh, I can't picture a single other person in this role. Like, it's perfect. No, it's just, it's wild. And it's like, you know, James Woods might be a shitty person now, but, like, when he was doing stuff like this and, like, all through the 80s, like, he was a scumbag. But, like, he was the best scumbag you could hire to put in your movie. I mean, his personality in the movie is also a slimy scumbag, you know, just so, you know, he's a, he's a sleazy TV guy. Yeah, and he's a sleazy guy in real life, so it's a, it's a perfect marriage, goddammit. Now, to talk about less problematic people in the cast, um, the film also stars Deborah Harry, who is, you know, best known for being the singer of Blondie, has Sonia Smits, Peter Dvorsky, who plays Harlan, who you already talked about, Les Carlson, who plays Barry Convicts, and Jack Creeley, who plays Brian Oblivia, the media prophet. At the time, this was Cronenberg's first big movie because it was picked up for distribution by Universal Studios, mostly because of the box office success of Scanners. It was also his last film produced under the Canadian tax shelter. Now, for those you don't know, for years in Canada, a lot of the exploitation movies and some of the non-exploitation movies would raise money through a thing called the Canadian Tax Shelter, which basically allowed a bunch of rich Canadians to funnel their money into movie productions as a tax write-off. But then, if the money, if the movie made money, they got a bunch of fucking money back. So it's you know kind of win-win. I I kind of wish Jeff Bezos would like dump money in like just crazy exploitation movies instead of buying a fucking second yacht. What the fuck do you need a yacht for, man? A yacht with a yacht on it. Yeah, that's just fucking dumb. Make make some fucking trash movies, man. Just stop with the prestige stuff you're trying to do on Amazon Prime or whatever. Just make fucking trash. Remake Emmanuel in America. Look, man. If you're gonna be a greasy fucking scummy billionaire, make fucking greasy scummy movies. That's all I'm asking. Spend your money well. Not on a fucking yacht. There's just there's something to say about rich people trying to get a tax write-off making things like Videodrome or The Brood or Pinball Summer or fucking Black Christmas or any of the fucking great, like, Canadian exploitation movies or horror movies or genre movies for that matter. Those rich assholes did it right. Buying a yacht is not doing it right. But we're getting off topic here. Anyway, the... Basically, the Canadian tax shelter was responsible for making, like, tons of really awesome Canucksploitation movies. And, frankly, I kind of miss those days. Because, like, it 
sort of like I miss like the heyday of a Italian genre filmmaking where like they're just cranking shit out. The Canadians were doing the same thing. But anyway, back to Videodrome. So for those of you who haven't seen it, which I can't believe anyone listening to this podcast hasn't seen it, but it happens. Anyway, here's your plot. Max Wren, played by James Woods, is a programmer on a TV station that specializes in adult entertainment, searches for the producers of a dangerous and bizarre broadcast that involves, you know, basically people being murdered on camera, a.k.a. snuff films, a.k.a. snuff TV. Now, we already mentioned earlier that, reportedly, David Cronenberg saw Emanuel in America it was so disturbed by the, the fake snuff footage in it that it was one of the main inspirations behind Videodrome. Although, I don't know if this is urban legend or not, but like, I'm just going to keep floating this because I think it's a cool story. And it's not like Cronenberg wasn't watching like sexploitation, pornography, and stuff like that in the 70s. In fact, like, the company that produced his first two movies, Cineflex, was best known for making softcore porn anyway. So it's, he was part of that world. He knew what was up. But the other inspiration was from Cronenberg's childhood. When he was a kid, he noticed that when the Canadian TV stations went off the air late at night, the signal would start picking up, you know, American TV signals from Buffalo, New York. And it started making him worry that he might see something disturbing that he wasn't supposed to see. Like, the idea of, like, pirate broadcasts. Like, because, you know, there's been pirate radio stations and things like that. I guess, what's to stop people from doing, like, pirate TV? I kind of think about, like, that other thing that happened. Like, I think it happened in Chicago, and I didn't write it down, but it just, like, popped in my head. Like, remember that, like, when McDonald's had, like, that moon, like, guy that they were using Ma- to promote Mac- shit? I Mac guess the Knife? Late Night Drive-In stuff, Mac- or drive through stuff? It's a Mac the knife. Mac the knife. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what it was. So apparently there was a broadcast on like I think some radio or um, TV station in um Chicago that someone hacked the signal and it had a guy dressed as Mac the knife getting spanked on the air for a few minutes and then it, like cut out, like someone like just jammed the satellite signal. Isn't so, that what? Um, isn't that what? Um max hedrum was as well wasn't there an original like max hedrum was like a pirate thing that happened and then the, and then it turned into like a you know a cultural thing that was just kind of everywhere maybe i'm not sure or maybe it was actually like someone dressed as max hedrum instead of mac the knife maybe i'm confusing the two things they I, look I think... they look similar fuck it, but it's right. it's weirder if it's both <laughs> you know what shit i'm gonna br- i'm gonna break my rule now that we're going down this deep, deep, deep dive into weird TV signal jamming and figure out if was it Max Hedrum or was it Mac the Knife? I think it was Mac the Knife. Um, and was Max Hedrum also a McDonald's thing? No. Let's see. Is in Back to the Future 2. Oh. Oh, actually, it, was, it wasn't Mac the Knife, it was Max Hedrum. So I just wasted her time talking about a fucking moon for McDonald's. But I'm glad you know it's Mac the Knife. But anyway, so some asshole dressed up as Max Hedrum had himself spanked on air on a, on a jammed satellite signal. So, hey, Cronenberg was right, worried about seeing things you're not supposed to see. But, like, I think that's one of the few times that someone, like, 
privately took a pirate signal and broke into the TV. But in essence, it's kind of the premise of Videodrome in a way. So I'm just going to pull this quote real quick. It's from an interview with um, Video Watchdog's Tim Lucas, where Cronenberg stated, I've always been interested in dark things and other people's fascination with dark things. Plus the idea of people locking themselves in a room, turning a key on a television set so they can watch something extremely dark by doing that, allowing themselves to explore their fascinations. So that's, that's the essence of Videodrome. Now, unlike the previous two films discussed, there's a bit of separation between the grisly reality of snuff footage and the fantastic presented in Videodrome. The snuff scenes that the Videodrome broadcast, I should say, that, like, Max is trying to pirate, they're pretty disturbing. And, you know, say what you will, it also continues that through line of, you know, the political nature of snuff films, in a way. I don't know if you agree or disagree on that. I took it as a commentary on violence in in film and television, and and its use, and or or maybe even more so on a critique of, uh, you know, Cronenberg's older films, like say people giving them bad reviews or talking about it, that they're too gory or, or graphic. Yeah, because it's not like Cronenberg is very sense pro sensor obviously and if you watch video room it's completely gory even though like they're searching for like the next big thing i think it just has to do with like weaponizing a tv signal in a way we'll get in that a little bit later now there's there's another quote this is from videodrome that when max ren is having lunch with one of his pornographer colleagues who's basically more or less giving the videodrome's manifesto and that line is, because it has something you don't have, Max. It has a philosophy, and that's what makes it dangerous. Which kind of ties in, like, the whole thing, because, like, originally they think they're getting all this signal from South America, which, you know, goes back to Emanuel America. That's where snuff films are made. That goes back to snuff. But it turns out, Videodrome isn't from South America. It's from Pittsburgh. A truly evil place. Yeah, I, I I know you know a few people <laughs> from Pittsburgh, but like, yeah, I, I don't really believe that. I take it back, Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll leave it there. Just jaking around, just just jacking. Okay, <laughs> just jacking. <yeah. laughs> um, oh, but um, so yeah, when they were saying like you know fucking when the violence has an ideology, it's even more dangerous or something like that. I was curious if it was a critique on other films, you know, where, where the violent, where violence doesn't have, isn't a necessity or something. It doesn't, you know, where it doesn't have a philosophy. No, I mean, you gotta think like the video room still coming out eighty three was coming after like the boom of like the special effects thing where people were pushing things to bigger, better, gorier, scarier, whatever. And that and that's what I'm saying is that was he commenting on other films that are, are lesser than Cronenberg films, you know, because Cronenberg has a message. You know, he may be showing you all this crazy shit, but you know, there's thought behind it where he's maybe saying like all these other people are using all these resources and making all this crazy shit, but what is it saying? Maybe. I mean, I don't really know. But, like, it does kind of go into, like, the arc that Max Wren has in the movie. Well, at least the beginning. Because the thing I find relatable of 
to what he's doing. When I was, you know, in my teens, and we've kind of talked about this, like, I, and we talked about this on many other episodes of podcasts, it's like, it's kind of relatable to viewers of horror and cult cinema because, like, there's a certain point when you get into it, you're searching for the next extreme. And, you know, you can watch, like, a Friday 13th movie, and it's like, yeah, whatever. That's whatever. I want to see something that takes it even further. Get past the bullshit fucking hockey mask goon or whatever. And it's kind of another thing that's being said in the movie, because, like, you know, normal sex and violence isn't cutting it anymore. Like, Max Wren needs something to go to the next level. And the same with um, Deborah Harry's Nikki Brand, who's also looking for the next extreme, who's also aroused by the images of Videodrome. And, I mean, for her, it's a kink. And, you know, thinking of Nikki Brand, it's kind of relatable to Emmanuel, Laura Genzer's Black Emmanuel character, Emmanuel America, who's, like, you know, looking for stuff, you know, because, like, she's an investigative reporter and all that, but also fulfilling a need to find the next extreme because, like, some people, that's their kink. Like, looking for, like, what's the next level how far can I push something? I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with that concept at all. I mean, it it's kind of manifesto for a lot of people, though. It's just like everything's got to be more, and it, yeah. I mean, it's also like a reflection of what was happening at heart at the time, you know, because everyone was pushing things to extreme. Once you had Dawn of the Dead, and then Friday the Thirteenth, and then like. I think the year before Video Road came out, you had John Carpenter's thing. Like, everyone was pushing things to be the next extreme. Except in this movie, Extremity has a price. And by watching Video Drone, it literally destroys and warps your mind. It gives Max a fucking brain tumor where he can't tell what's real anymore. And it unlocks a bevy of hallucinatory and grotesque images of, you know, Cronenberg's favorite thing body horror you know and i guess we should talk about those special effects of video drone because they were done by the great rick baker who we talked about i guess a couple podcasts ago when we were talking about american werewolf in london and i'll be honest i think some of rick's best work is in video drone and i kind of wish he and cronenberg had worked more together it's fucking fantastic fantastic uh the the you know the the fucking hole in his in Max Ren's stomach, you know they're inserting those like wet, wet uh, fucking biological fucking videotapes into his stomach. Yeah, and it's, and it's fucking it's awesome. It's it's disgusting. And then you have like I mean Cronenberg wasn't above like jokes because like you know Max Ren eventually gets a handgun because his hand literally turns into a fucking gun that fires cancer bullets. And he gives someone a literal hand grenade. Plus you have the horny pulsating TV. And then, of course, Barry Convict's, like, very, very bloody demise once he gets shot with a bunch of cancer bullets. It's, you know, like, those effects are fucking nuts. And then there's all the stuff that they ended up either cutting or didn't film. Like, there's there's a bunch of other weird, like, like just reading about it. It's just like, I kind of want to see. There's, like, there was a scene where, like, I guess Max and Nikki Brand are kissing and their face melt and then like their melted faces like go up the leg of someone that was like peeping in on them but then it melts that guy. I don't know if they ever filmed that. And I know there was a thing they did a bunch of tests on. I don't know if they shot it 
where they just kind of scrapped it, but it, like there was like a TV rising out of the bathtub kind of thing. There's all kinds of weird shit. And Cronenberg was quoted as saying that uh, you know, it had this had the screenplay actually been made into a film, it would have been a triple X film. I mean, without a doubt, especially at that period. I mean, if Cronenberg had made a literal adaption of William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, that would have been a triple X movie that would have been banned in every fucking country. And then Cronenberg always starts too big and then, like, kind of pairs it down. But the stuff that's still in there is really effective. Although, there was a bunch of different endings to Videodrome. And, like, I think the ending that happens in the movie, which is, like, the long-lived New Flash fucking Max Ren fucking caps himself with his handgun. Literal handgun. But there was another ending that, like, after that, Max Ren wakes up in the Videodrome and, like, everyone that was in the movie shows up with, like, new, like, you know, penis hands and fucking vaginal slits in their stomach, and it becomes this insane fucking orgy at the end of the movie. Well, I haven't seen that. You know, another thing I was thinking of was, um, is this is this the first or one of the first instances in film uh, where there's, like, something that's... Uh, VR, you know, like that's kind of what that is, is like a VR helmet that they put on him. And then he's like in Videodrome. That's a good question. It might be because like, yeah, the one thing about Cronenberg, especially the movies he was making at the time were like, you know, the science fiction elements were like a lot of that shit ended up becoming real. You know, I mean, that could be a VR experience. It's kind of interesting you bring that up because that reminds me of the TV version. Because, like, when you watch the movie on your Blu-ray or DVD or VHS or however you're watching it, once you put he puts the helmet on and he goes in the videodrome, you see him, like, kind of whip whip the shit out of Nikki Brand or whatever. But then it ends up being Marsha, the pornographer friend that had, like, told him, like, videodrome has a philosophy thing. And then you never see the helmet again. In the TV cut, there's a couple shots of, like, Max Ren walking down like a hallway and he stops and looks into like a like a window and you see his reflection he's wearing the fucking helmet so like I think there was ideas that they shot that didn't get used that unfortunately got shoehorned into that TV cut where it kind of explains like oh he's wearing that helmet the whole time from then on out I kind of like the director's cut better because then you don't really know what's reality what's hallucination is the helmet is his fucking brain just fucking rotting from like videodrome cancer or whatever i think that's the that's the main flaw of the tv cut because the tv cut starts spelling things out that don't necessarily sh- need to be or should be so like spelled out there's a couple other things when i think of videodrome it's you know it's a comment on media and its consumption which we've kind of already hit upon it's also has to do with brainwashing and reprogramming, which kind of harkens back to the Manchurian Candidate, because Max Wren is basically being programmed to become Videodrome's assassin, until it, until it like rots his body and it's like no longer of use, and then Videodrome got what it wanted from him. Like, it's, it's, it's fucking wild. And the other thing to think about is like, we already talked about VR. Videodrome was also ahead of its time because it accurately predicted the future of endless. And boundaryless media consumption, which is the internet. You kind of hit at it now, too. Like, you can go on 4chan or 8chan or Reddit, and you can see really, really fucked up shit that someone filmed on their phone. Or people can post whatever, you know? I know the internet's supposed to have, like, rules and regulations. But- that shit's still the Wild West, man. Totally still the Wild West. 
Oh, it definitely is. And I'm just going to throw out, there's a lot of really good quotes. Like, there, I feel like Videodrome has, like, some of the greatest fucking quotes of any movie. I know when we were doing Inspy, we used, I think, a Videodrome sound clip on our first demo. When I was in another band called Kiram, a grind band, I think it's on a split we did with this band called Unholy Grave, we used, like, another Videodrome sound clip. It's the one where Harlan's like, North America's getting soft Patron, while the rest of the world is getting tough. Like, basically just pushing, like, you know, just, like, how fucking hardcore things are. And although I didn't use this in a, as a sound clip, I, I think this is a really great quote from the movie. And it's from media prophet Brian Oblivion, who only appears on TV through a TV, which is just fucking genius if you think about it and the quote is the battle for the mind of north america be, will be fought in the video arena the video drone the, fe- the television screen is the retina of the mind's eye therefore the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain therefore whatever appears on the television screen emerges as a raw experience for those who watch it therefore television is reality and reality is less than television which that's the fucking internet man this was a this was a decade before fucking you know Ted Turner's fucking twenty four hour news cycle. David Cronenberg was predicting everything from the internet to twenty four hour news to fucking you name it. We're fucked. Yeah, I mean like even the stuff like his like um channel eighty three or whatever it is. I think that's what it's called. I know we stopped and looked up the fucking uh, Max Headroom thing, but like, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's Channel 83. Civic TV. Civic TV. It's what's on. But like, the thing about it, like, you know, I think in the 70s there was like Z channels, stuff like that, but it also predicted like premium cable channels. And I know like it was supposed to be like kind of a, like a, not an up and up like TV station. But it predicted, like, all the things that would come, you know, HBO, Cinemax, and that kind of stuff. Funny enough, places where video drum would eventually play. But then it also lead in, led into, like, you know, streaming choices, where everything is now curated. Like, video drums curated. Or, like, I should say, Civic TV's curated. And the fact they want to bring in Videodrome is, like, part of the curation. Because, again, it goes back to, like, looking for that next extreme. Samurai Dreams just wasn't enough. No. But you did get that. It's you, it's funny you mentioned that because, like, if you see a film print of Videodrome, the end of Samurai Dreams is cut where she pulls off, like, has that little, like, doll that she undresses that reveals itself to be a dildo. Like, that got... Uni- Universal actually pulled that. They're like, no, can't have a dildo in this movie. But you can shove a video cassette into your stomach that's like a vaginal slit. That's okay. So yeah, Videodrome's the internet. It's the video word made flesh. So we just live in Videodrome. I guess long live the new flesh. Until something else comes out that's worse than the internet that's going to be... I don't know, man. I I think it's just going to be like someone's going to implant like some like microchip or like a special contact lens in. So you're always consuming media even when you don't want to. I mean that's so incredibly that's so incredibly close to being here, you know what I mean? Do you remember when people were getting uh, beat up for wearing Google Glass? Yeah, <laughs> probably right. I would say rightfully so for that. But, but pretty soon they're just going to be contact lenses, and you don't even know if someone has them. 
Yeah. I mean, and we all will. That's where we're heading. As we're heading, people are going to be filming snuff films with their contact lenses and posting them on YouTube. We're going to take another commercial break, but when we return, more Snuffleupagus here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination. To the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Please, come to me now. Come to Nikki. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome. Videodrome. Starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. Welcome back. We have one last snufftastic film here on the Cinematic Void podcast, Up the Snuff episode. And as we were talking about looking for the next extreme with Videodrome, well, at least at the time, this next film kind of was it for a bit. It's from 1985. It's directed by Hadishi Hino. It is Guinea Pig 2, Flower of Flesh and Blood. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, the, there was a series in Japan called Guinea Pig, which consisted of six extreme horror movies based upon manga stories by Hideshu Hino, who directed this one and Mermaid in a Manhole, which is either the fourth or sixth film in the series, depending on who you talk to, which will come to play in a little bit. All the films deal with graphic violence, mutilation, and torture. You know, keeping things upbeat this episode. Nothing but upbeat. And for this one, here's the plot. Although, you might argue that it's not really a plot. Late at night, a woman is kidnapped by an unknown assailant dressed as a samurai and is taken back to his blood-splattered dungeon, where he turns her into a flower of blood and flesh by dismembering. I guess this is more of an extended short than a feature-length movie, because it only runs for 40 minutes, and really, the majority of the runtime is torture and dismemberment. Now, I remember seeing this for the first time off a of bootleg tape from Bruce Holchek from Cinema Arcana back in the 90s. And honestly, seeing on that format kind of added to the mystique of it because it was a dupey VHS tape. So it was really, you know, not the best quality. It's probably the closest I've come to seeing something that felt like, you know, 
I was watching a snuff film, like a real one. And obviously it wasn't, and obviously that's not what I was really looking for. I, I knew it was a fake film going in, but I knew the whole backstory behind it. Although, for the most part, the effects are really good. There's a couple kind of fakey effects that kind of give away the whole, it's not real. But I will say this, this movie was not designed to be a fake snuff film in any way, shape, or form. It was just supposed to be a graphic, extreme horror movie. And it's kind of like one of those titles in line with Cannibal Holocaust or Necromantic, which, you know, I would hear about, and I just wanted to see if it really went that far. You know, Guinea Pig, or at least Part 2, which we're talking about, had some extra notoriety attached to it outside of the film itself, which kind of leads into why people thought it was a snuff film, or gets lumped into that snuff category. The first being the alleged copycat crimes by Japanese serial killer Tsumo Mazaki, a.k.a. the Otaku murderer, who between 1988 and 1989 tortured, murdered, and sexually molested the corpses of four young girls. When he was arrested at his home, the police searched and found a bunch of like horror movies and pornography, and supposedly a copy of Guinea Pig 2. It was reported that Miyazaki was recreating scenes from the film with his victims. The only problem was he didn't actually have a copy of the film. It was actually part four or part six of the series. And I have to say that because Hideshi Hino, who noted that the film in Miyazaki's collection was one of the ones he wasn't involved in. While he created the series, he only directed two of them, and the only other one he directed was Mermaid in a Manhole, which most people consider part four, but he always refers to as part six. If you go to the Unearthed Films website or their filmography or whatever, they list Mermaid in a Manhole as four, not six, but Hino considers it six. Makes things confusing. Either way, this guy didn't have a copy of one of the guinea pig films he directed. It was a completely different one. Now... As we were talking about this, this little tidbit, I think kind of like, I don't want to say excited you, but it was just like the holy shit moment of it. And I don't know how much of it is like urban legend or real at this point, but goddamn, it's a good story. And I'm just going to throw it to you because you're like, what the fuck, man? Really? <laughs> so of, of all people, Mr. fucking uh, Tiger's Blood himself, Charlie Sheen, uh saw that some and i don't know why charlie sheen is watching flower of flesh and blood um maybe maybe charlie sheen is a fucking not only is a tiger blood fiend but a but a fucking gore hound and uh but he saw this and fucking lost his shit and i guess you know charlie sheen has the uh, direct line to the fbi i don't i don't have the fbi's number but he called the fbi and reported this film and uh, and told them that he had seen like an actual murder on film, at the, and so as far as I know, it was investigated be, due to Charlie Sheen, uh, in particular. Yeah, th there's a couple different versions of this I've heard. The one that I've seen the most publicly talked about is that Chris Gore from Film Threat had given Charlie Sheen a copy of it. Why? Who the fuck knows? But that's one of the versions. Another version I heard that Charlie Sheen was working on on a movie with um. K&B special effects, which was um, Kurtzman, Nicotero, and um, Berger. You know, real famous special effects team. And for some reason, they gave him a copy, or one of those guys gave him a copy to watch. No one fucking knows why. 
But yeah, Sheen was so disturbed by that he thought it was a real snuff film and turned it over to the FBI. So this kind of harkens back to snuff where there was actual investigation in the film. So the feds, you know, looked into it. They inquired and investigated anyone that had any associated. Do you do you think when uh, do you think when he called the FBI, he had the haircut from a uh, major? League? I would hope so. I mean, could you imagine like getting that call? Federal Bureau of Investigation. Can I ask who's calling? Yeah, it's Charlie Sheen, man. I got I, I just watched a snuff film. A what? A movie where someone just died in it, man. I, I I need to turn this in. Like, how does that even fucking happen? Truly. Like, how serious? <laughs> I mean, I know this is pre-Tiger Blood Sheen before or, he like. Or fucking... is it? Or is it? We don't know how long he's been losing his fucking mind. He might have always lost his fucking mind. I don't know. Crack's Crack's been big since the eighties. Valid point. So who knows? But like, you know, the feds did their due diligence and, you know, they the name that's always been thrown out that's associated with the story is Chaz Ballon from Deep Red Magazine, who also used to sell bootleg VHS and hard to find uncut films for like he had a mail order catalog and guinea pig. Well, I think a few movies from the guinea pig series were on it because like he would get a laser disc. I know we talked about bootleg VHS multiple times on this podcast, but Chaz sold a lot of them. Allegedly, the FBI came and paid him a visit. Although years later, Ballon admitted that like, yeah, the feds never contacted me. So the whole, the whole fact that Charlie Sheen is roped into this movie somehow, just, it's just so fucking weird. And the movie's really fucking disturbing, but, like, the fact that, like, Charlie Sheen sat, sat down to watch this, I don't know what the context is. He's like, I want to see something fucked up, or he's like, what's a cool movie you guys been watching? I, I don't know the context of why Charlie Sheen ended up with a copy of Guinea Pig 2. The fact that, like, regardless, that Charlie never bothered finishing watching the tape, if he had, he would have discovered a making-of documentary that showed how all the gore effects were done in the movie. <laughs> uh, I remember seeing that documentary because on the tape that Bruce showed me, it had the documentary on it. He might have had a tape that didn't have it, but once the FBI saw the making-of documentary, they're like, yeah, case closed. But the notoriety continues to live on with this one. In fact, Unearthed Films, one of your favorite labels, Nick, oh, yeah. because I think you You've name-dropped him, like, at least on the last several podcasts. Oh, yeah, I should have another uh, Unearthed coming in the mail, I think, tomorrow. <laughs> Just copy, keep on coming. Copy of No Reason coming. Can't wait to see it. Oh. <laughs> Just keep on going. So, I know Unearthed at one point put out a box set of all the Japanese guinea pig movies, which they might be out of print, but I can I also can say, like, with anything, they'll end up back in print at some time. Probably on Deluxe Blu-ray which is kind of funny that that's the journey that movie's on. But Unearth actually made their own, like, tribute series to Guinea Pig called American Guinea Pig, which I think has, like, four films in the series right now. I, I think you get all those from Unearth if you're looking looking for that vibe. Now, can I recommend Guinea Pig 2? I don't know. I guess we recommend Emmanuel America, so fuck it. Go see Guinea Pig 2 with your grandma or your children or whatever i don't know actually don't do that please don't do that but it you know for a 40 minute like basically a guy like trying to make art out of a woman that's drugged up that he's cutting out 
spoons out her fucking eyeball, all kinds of other grotesque shit. It, it, it's pretty brutal. I mean, it's so brutal that fucking Charlie Sheen called the FBI on it, so that's that's the recommendation there. A movie so brutal that Charlie Sheen called the FBI on it. That should be the fucking, like, when it gets re-released, that should be on the fucking, like, Hell yeah. Blu-ray fucking cover. Scream that shit from the fucking mountaintops. I mean, they should also hire Charlie Sheen to come do a commentary on it. <laughs> it's like, I was coked out of my mind watching this movie, and, like, when it got this part, I was like, fuck, man, it has to be real. I, I just speed dialed the FBI. I don't know why I have the FBI on my speed dial. <laughs> I, Could you imagine that? He just dials 911. <laughs> <laughs> 911, what's your emergency? I'm watching a snuff film. We'll patch you through. What? <laughs> we'll patch you. We're going to transfer you to the FBI. That, that's what I really want. I want that phone call. Oh, shit. <laughs> I, want, I want the... The fucking know the panic. F- panicked fucking Charlie Sheen. Oh, God. <laughs> that's what I fucking want is fucking the phone call... Of Charlie Sheen to the FBI. It's got to be a fucking, like, masterpiece. It's got to exist. So, someone help us. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm i sure it's in a classified, like, audio vault in the FBI. But, like, eventually, I think that shit's got to be dis- declassified. Do you know someone who works for the FBI? Can you get us a copy of the Charlie Sheen phone call about Guinea Pig 2? If you can, let us know. Hit us up on all the socials, because... That is now my holy grail. We'll pre- Charlie Sheen calling the... We'll press it on vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> press it on vinyl. <laughs> Exclusive. Fucking lab cut, like, <laughs> Charlie Sheen calling the FBI. I mean, there's dumber things released, so... I don't know, man. That'd be cinem- Cinematic Void record number one. Charlie Sheen calling the FBI. It'll be in the shape... The, the, the record... Can be in the shape of his haircut in Major League. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I mean, if I believe in hell, we're probably going to going to it for this episode. But whatever, <laughs> I don't know. If you guys haven't had enough Tiger's blood in this episode, we're gonna take one last break. When we return, it's gonna be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. <laughs> Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Hey, kid. What's going on, big guy? What's up, man? How you doing? Hey, you're going to love this. I'm wearing the new Hanes boxer briefs. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They don't ride up your leg. Check it out. Charlie Sheen! Charlie Sheen! Did you park it for me? Awesome. <laughs> Underwear that fits better. That's the Comfort Fit Promise. Only from Hanes. Welcome back. It's now time for...
here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to, but not calling the FBI. That doesn't end up on this list. So, I don't know. All right, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right, I just got uh, multiple copies of the Lock and Key uh, Sandman number one comic book by Joe Hill. Uh, Joe Hill did the Lock and Key series. Uh, if you don't know, Joe Hill is uh, Stephen King's son. Um, he goes by Joe Hill as to kind of, you know, hide a little bit. But, you know, everybody knows now. We know who you are. But he's a, he's a great writer on his own. And he did this great comic book called Lock and Key. And it's been over for quite a while at this point. There's been a Netflix series that is that is ongoing. It's worth all the praise it gets. It's It's great. Um, but they just did a, they're doing a series now that is Lock and Key, uh, and Sandman, uh, Sandman by Neil Gaiman, uh, classic nineties, you know, like, I mean, just fucking legendary nineties comic book. There's like, fuck, I, I just, God damn it. It's, it's Sandman. Look it up. It's great. Don't, I'm not even going to go into it. I'll fucking talk forever about Sandman. Uh, Lock and Key and Sandman are now together. Um, there was a, there was, uh, there's a part in Sandman where it's like the key to the gate of hell. And I may or may not have that tattooed on my fucking arm. And th- so that's incorporated in the Lock and Key comic book now. So, they, so it's one of the new keys. Anyway, that's what I've been fucking reading. Um, and I can't wait for the rest of the series. I don't know if it's limited. I, I, I have no idea where this is going, but the first uh, the first book is great. So fucking A, man. I'm, I'm beyond, beyond fucking stoked that this exists. So that's my read for this week. For this snuff episode, in particular, I went back to this, um, and I've told you about this before, and so I'm like stoked to fucking talk about this. But uh, so I just and and even for this episode, I went back and actually listened to this recording. So check this out. If you've made it this far into this episode, you don't need a fucking trigger warning. But uh, so this guy, there's this uh, artist named John Duncan. Uh, he was a L.A. guy, I believe, at least, you know, that's uh, way back in the day. Um, but he's a performance artist, a, you know, experimental music artist, you can call him. Um, he was also a, a pornographer, um, so he's you know a master of, of of many talents. So they were having a big uh, performance art festival in L.A. in 1980. So his um, his piece in this festival is called Blind Date. Bl- what Blind Date was is he he um, got his heart broken by this woman. Like just he got destroyed. And he didn't know how to cope with it. And he decided he was going to get a vasectomy. But before he got his vasectomy um, for art, he decided that he wanted to uh, spend his last seed in a cadaver. So what I'm saying is he wants to fuck a dead body. The last time he comes, he's going to come inside a dead body. So he went on a journey to make this happen. And went to different sex shops and like talked to people that he knows. Like I say, he's a pornographer. Like he's... He's in the trenches. He asks around and he pisses people off, um, but eventually talks to the right person. And so he goes down to Tijuana and pays and, you know, it ends up spending some, not a lot of money, but, you know, to this person, to this person, and then ends up getting access to a, a, a dead woman in her thirties. 
and this is insane. Like, you know, this is, um, we don't, we don't condone this. <laughs> if that's not obvious, fucking he procures a, a, a dead person and has, you know, as any good experimental music artist does, he has his field equipment or whatever, you know, he has a small recording device or whatever, and proceeds to go into the room with this dead body and record himself, not, not video, but audio of himself fucking this corpse. And, um, and he, there is a boot, there's at least bootleg releases of like cassettes and LPs of Blind Date. But, um, but at the time it, it played at this, uh, LA festival. This was in 1980. When I say it played, I don't know if there was like some kind of visual or something. That's not, uh, not this again. I want to stress that there's like no video of him like fucking this corpse. There's maybe some type of uh, visual aid there, but you know, basically just a room full of people listening to this. You can't, I mean, it, it, it doesn't sound like that's what's happening on the recording for one. But anyway, John Duncan Blind Date, I, I pulled that out and listened to this. It's on YouTube if you want to look it up. And the clip on YouTube does have a long explanation of what it is before it plays. And it's worth even just listening to that, you know, two, three minute explanation, even though I just gave one. Um, it's a little better said. And and then if you want to go from there and also listen to the whole thing, if you're that much of a sick fuck, uh, it's there for the, for the taking. I found out about John Duncan via uh, the Noise Extra podcast, uh, which is done by uh, my friends uh, Gray Holger and Mike and Tara Connolly. Uh, super, super well-versed in like experimental music. Um, and I highly recommend their episode on John Duncan and his record called uh, Dark Market Broadcast, uh, which I also listened to this week. And there it is. Uh, there's my listen. And then uh, watch. Here we go. Uh, so I, d I just watched Climax, uh, another Gaspar Noy. Um, Cause you know, that's what I've been doing lately. And then uh, for more snuff uh, related um, I watched Benny's video, which is a uh, Michel Haneke film. H have you seen Have you seen Benny's video? I've seen vid Benny's video back in the day. Um, when I was in film school, I had a professor that like loaned me Funny Games, and then kept loaning me more like Piano Teacher, mm -hmm. Benny's video, and all that kind of stuff. It's been a It's been a while, but like I feel like your discovery of like art house smut, yeah, is when I went through my like twenties. Okay. And now you're now you're <laughs> having your art house smut awakening in your forties. Yeah, yes, that I am. And uh yeah, so Benny's video I fucking absolutely love it. Great. But um funny games as well. Just all all the all the Hanukkah stuff. Um absolutely highly recommended for me, uh for sure. Um so also ben, Benny's video, but then I watched um Seventh Continent, which is uh Hanukkah's first film. Straight up like I've watched everything I've watched every fuck. Like I've been going through like the craziest fucking films of all time. I don't know what the fuck I'm looking for or like what, or what I'm finding, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but you know, I, I'm, I'm discovering things, discovering things about myself, discovering things about film, discovering things about humanity, whatever the fuck. Right. But dude, seventh continent. Um, okay. So it's a, it's a film about this Australian family and, it's a true story, not Australian. They're it's Austrian. They're Austrian. They're kind of like acting like they're going on like vacation or something at some point in the film, but they're not. They're, so this family, this this uh, you know, young child and mother and father, like the the parents have decided they're going to kill themselves, and then they're wrestling with are they going to kill the kid? Like it's fucking, it's crazy. 
but it happens in fucking slow motion. Like it's a fucking car crash and it happens in, uh, it's like three, it's, it happens in three parts and it's like three different years. I think it's like three years apart. Maybe I, I can't remember that aspect of it. I've seen so much crazy shit lately. And this is the film that affected me more than anything. And it's not even like, it wasn't even like the suicide part of it, but like just the way this fucking film moves, man, it's just, it killed it. Like I was yelling at my fucking TV. I was laughing. I was crying. This fucking movie destroyed me <laughs> straight up. Like this is the one. And, and, and like, it's not gory. It's a little fucked up when they start dying. But like, have you seen this one? That that is the one I haven't seen. And it's like it it was on my radar. I think at the time when like all those when I was watching all those ones, that might have been the one that didn't have a release, so I kind of missed it. So I don't know if I could go back and watch it now at this point. It's it's on the Criterion channel if you want to see it. It doesn't seem like there's a, a widely available like Blu-ray or even DVD uh, at least in this region. But um but uh yeah, it fucking really de- it destroyed me. Like this is the one. Like I, I I like absolutely perfect fucking movie. Like it starts off way too slow. Way too slow where it's like I'm like, man, I'm just I don't even want to watch this. But then something hit and like it like fucking caught my attention. <laughs> and then the rest of it was like history, you know what I mean? And then it just like went from there. Oh man. What a fucking film. He does have this tendency to like start off slow and then just build to some. Even if like a lot of the stuff isn't on camera, like I think of funny games where like none of the violence is really like you actually see, but the way it's just set up and like the emotional like weight of things. Oh yeah. And like it, he he tapped into that thing that just like master of soul crushing. Truly, truly, it's a it's not a. If, if you haven't seen any of his films, you know, a lot of people have seen like the funny games films, but probably haven't ventured much further past that. It seems like, but, uh, I think a lot of people saw cache. Oh yeah. I, got... I really like cache as well. Definitely fucking incredible. Like it's, I think at the time, like at least when I was watching him is also the Takeshi McKay era. Like just like a lot of like, I don't want to say gonzo, but like people that worked in extremes or like different aspects of extremes. So when I think, oh, Michael Henke, I don't know if you're saying it right or I'm saying it right. So <laughs> I, we're, we're just going to leave both ways. One of, one of us is right. One of us is wrong or both of us are wrong. So or both of us could be right. I don't know. But like it, it kind of harkens back to, you know, what I was saying. Videodrome is like the search for more extremes and like the way he handles that. It's like it's not the most graphic thing you're gonna see, but it's like it's gonna fuck you up just as much. Oh yeah, but yeah, that's my uh, that that one. I I can't recommend it any higher. Like if you if you if you want to get your fucking soul crushed for whatever fucking reason, check check out uh, Seventh Continent. And I just saw uh, Death Collector as part of the Cinemadness movie uh, last Friday. And what'd you think of that? It's cool. It's fucking different, man. It's a, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. It's cool. It's just fun. Fun and weird as hell. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Culture Shock releasing for that one because that when they were pitching titles, like that was the first one they pitched, and it's like, I'm down for it. Then they kind of like, well, maybe we should do a horror movie instead. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like, it, 
this is one thing I really like about doing cinematic movies is that I can like throw curveballs and like not I have it, there's more there's more freedom where I like I don't know if I could get away with ever showing um Death Collector as a cinematic void in the theater because it'd be a tougher sell but like introducing people to it now is like it's a great way to do it virtually so which is you know I'll talk about this when we close out here, but like you know, that's why the cinematic move is going to continue because it's more opportunities to like see things like Death Collector and stuff like that. So I'm glad you dug it. I think most people ended up really getting into it, which has been you know it's been a wild run of cinematic movies going from Fetus to Death Collector. I've seen some weird stuff uh, this past 15 months, that's for sure. Yeah, it's going to keep on going. So I guess for my read, watch, and listen, I'm going to skip read because I ain't read shit lately. That's all me. I've been actually in the middle of painting my living room as we're recording this, and as soon as I get done here, i got to finish doing the ceiling. really happy with it. It's a, it's a nice vibe. It's a lot lighter, but whatever. No one gives a shit about my living room. I do, but you listening probably doesn't. Nick, you might give a shit about my living room. I give a shit. I don't know. You give a shit. Maybe people listening. So I'm just, yeah, man, just redoing my living room. Moved my <laughs> desk and computer. Got some new shelves for the Blu-rays and stuff. I'm really into it. So that's what I've been doing instead of reading. Watching, it's been pretty light. I, I've i never watched it until like last week. And mostly because I wasn't sure where to watch it. It's on that Vice documentary ser- series, Dark Side of the Ring. I think you recommended it to me like a while back. And like, that shit is, like, some of the best, like, true crime documentaries I've ever seen. Oh, so good. And then uh, New Jack died this week. Died two Did two he? days ago. Yeah, New, New Jack died two days ago. No shit. Yeah. I mean, He's like... 59, I think. I mean, it, that series... Maybe not some of the ECW stuff, even though I did watch this stuff, but like when you hit the prime 80s, like 90s into like the Attitude Era of WWF, WWE, when like probably you and I were actually watching that shit, like the memories and like the 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 one episode sticks out to me because I'll never forget because I was at an airport in Arizona on my first trip to LA before I moved here. Actually, it wasn't even my first trip to LA. It was my first trip to I think maybe. I was going to San Francisco for work at the time. And I was at the airport. My flight was delayed, and I went to the bar. And on the bar TV was the Chris Benoit story, which they did a two-parter on. I think the new season kicked off with, like, a two-parter about Brian Pillman, too. So, like, you know, it's like I I haven't actively watched pro wrestling in, like, fuck, I don't even know now, like, at least 15, 20 years. But, like, those stories like they even did the the brawl for all thing they ever when they had wrestlers boxing and shit like that they go in that shit you were probably at my house when fucking Owen Hart died yeah we, i remember that dude it's weird because like so many of those things like i remember specifically happening cuz i think we had rented that pay-per-view the one where Owen Hart like yeah. died it was like a big party at my house like straight up uh you know 40s in the bathtub style yeah. Like cookout at my house and, you know, pay-per-view in the middle of the day, kind of evening. And yeah, fucking total bummer. Yeah, like it, just watching that unfold live was like, holy shit. It's, it's been a weird trip down memory lane. That's the only thing I've been really watching because I've been moving stuff around and just popping on at night. I, I do got a shit ton of Blu-rays I need to watch, so next time I'll get into those. As for Listen, there's a... It's been a bunch of tracks from various things, but 
a couple of things I've been listening to lately. I listened to Pig Destroyer Prowler in the Yard. I think it was because they have a song called Snuff Film at 11, which is kind of a warm-up for this podcast. I've uh, been listening to the Melvin's Houdini. Haven't thrown that on in a while. Shit still fucking rips. Um, been listening to this band from, I think from L.A. that, like, we were kind of into in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s called Gasp. This is a kind of collection of, like, you know, different splits, seven inches they did with other bands like Noothcrush and stuff like that. It's called An Earwig's Guide to the Traveling. And I guess I should explain what Gasp sounds like. They're kind of like a psychedelic, like, punk metal band with, like, tape loops and, like, you know, noise sections and stuff like that. I really like the full length that Slap a Hand put out, like, Christ, like, years ago. And, like, I think I picked this up on CD because I think um, one of the members of Gasp is now in Despise You, and I think it was at their distro table, and I was like, cool, I'm going to grab this shit. I don't know why I threw it on. I was painting my ceiling and had it on, so I don't know. Pretty good psychedelic weird shit. And the last thing I was listening to is um, A Feather and Bone, Sulfuric Disintegration, which was a record that came out last year that I completely fucking missed. I haven't heard that one yet. I just, I keep forgetting to check it out. Like, I I just happen to see it. I've, I've been throwing on it. It's pretty damn good, so, like, definitely check it out if you're getting onto a death metal kick at any point. But, like... It's just one of those records that like I missed. It's like, oh shit, they had a new record come out in 2020? What was I doing? I was at home, so I had no excuse of missing it. Those guys used to come to the record store uh, that I worked in, and they're, whenever uh, a Featherbone would play in town, and they were always super nice. Like, uh, I don't know. I guess maybe do, do, do death metal bands wouldn't be known as the ni- nice guys. Super nice guys of Feather and Bone. Um, and so I mean, check out all the records if you're into death metal. They're fucking rad, man. Yeah, I mean, before that, they were more of like a kind of a dark hardcore band, I guess. Oh yeah, I, I think maybe they're early, they had early, super early records, but uh, the two full lengths are they're they're full on like legit death metal. Yeah, I think we. Oh, I don't think I know. We saw them maybe like Christ. I don't even know at this point. It could be like 800 years of. I, I've lost all concept of fucking time. <laughs> since this pandemic but like it was a few years ago we actually went and saw them and like they fucking ripped live so yeah if you like death metal check out a feather and bone Who'd they play with but <laughs> i don't remember a bunch of bands they were on um oh they play with command and uh yeah, yeah they play with uh, like a bunch of maggot stomp bands yeah that's what it was and I forget who the headliner is. I know a lot of people were stoked to see the headliner. And I think we rolled out. Shout, no disrespect. To shout him. out to Maggot no, Stomp. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no disrespect to the headliner, but like I think we came to see the Maggot Stomp bands and No Feather and Bone, and we're like, <sighs> gotta go home, get some sleep, man. Totally. But that wraps up this episode, of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Um, if you like this episode, you know. Give us a five star on Apple Music or a thumbs up or a like or whatever whatever options you have on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you didn't like it, just call the fucking FBI on us and tell them Charlie Sheen sent you. Anyway, coming up on the Cinematic Movie, our next show is going to be June 11th. It's going to be a special episode presented by Midnight Cruise Studios. Um, I don't know if we're revealing the title in advance, but... I think you can figure it out from that clue. 
Also, coming up on the Cinematic Void podcast, we got some really cool episodes. We're going to be doing a Giallo-adjacent episode, which I'm really excited to do. And we're going to be digging into Camp Void as well. So keep your ears open for that. Until next time, see you in the void. void.